We you open your Bibles today to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. This is the Word of God. Let us give it our reverent attention. Psalm 122. A Song of Ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the peace of Jerusalem would be always upon the hearts of your people, that we would understand your great love for us, your people, that we would learn to love you and love one another, and so be that people and that city built compactly together on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The average democratically-minded American who imagines that power to improve or destroy life rests finally in the hands not of the ascended Christ, but the American people, this we-the-people Democrat sometimes finds himself inwardly groaning at the prospect of a business trip to Washington, D.C., or Austin, or even to his local county courthouse. He dreads it, first of all, because getting to those seats of power can be such a bother. Getting there, he can expect to face not only the traffic, not only the forfeiture of his personal privacy and Fourth Amendment rights at the airport, not only the risk of crime along the way, and all the political conflict of vastly diverse opinions now held in these once more or less united states, No, once he's through the process of getting there to the temples of civic power, he then has to empty his pockets one more time and send their contents through the x-ray for screening and probably the confiscation of that pocket knife with the one-inch blade he accidentally left on his keychain. The surrender of personal rights and personal property as we approach the temples of civic power has become essentially an act of religious devotion a sacrifice required in the festal procession of the humanist pilgrim going up to the house of his God. And all of us who are forced to do it are left not richer but poorer for the experience. The biblical theocrat, on the other hand, which is to say the Christian, 
who understands that our covenant God reigns in serene majesty over all the rebellion of sinners against the Lord and his Christ, the biblical theocrat goes up to the house of his covenant God in a very different frame of mind. 3,000 years ago, King David wrote a song for pilgrims who for centuries afterward followed him to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Because eventually, of course, that's where he brought the Ark of God. Actually dancing before it, as he did so, you remember. That's where the tabernacle, the throne room of Jehovah, finally settled in Jerusalem. That's where David wanted to build what he thought would be a proper house for God. Where God said, no, but it is I who will build a house for you. It was in Jerusalem that not David the warrior, David the man of blood, but Solomon his son, the man of peace, eventually did build God a house. It was therefore to that house in Jerusalem that three times a year the tribes of Israel went up to worship. Now, worship is a fascinating subject, at least to me it is. Have you ever noticed how differently churches approach their one central task of glorifying and enjoying the living and true God in worship? And I don't even include here the cults and all the various fringe groups. I mean evangelical churches that seem genuinely to love the Lord Jesus Christ. There are chapel groups and churches that build their worship experience around what they call the worship team. And typically the pastor isn't on it, I've found. The pastor, I guess, didn't make the cut. Maybe the pastor lacks the musical skills, gifts, and graces necessary really to worship. He's just up there to talk. No, the worship team is essentially a stage band, and their job apparently is to crank up the volume of the congregation's worship. More volume aims to generate more enthusiasm, and the more enthusiasm, the more volume. But what if you don't have a worship team? No band, no instruments, no amplifiers, no PowerPoint overheads. Then presumably, without a team to do it, you don't have worship. You just have some guy up there talking. At the other end of the spectrum of evangelical worship practices are those Reformed folk, present company certainly included, Reformed folk whose minds tend to gravitate to a fairly narrow range of biblically prescribed activities all done decently and in order. We are very orthodox about what happens in worship. Very cerebral. Very biblical. If there's a problem, it's probably that sometimes we just don't look too happy. Are you happy to be here? Are you happy to be here with all these other people? Are you happy to be worshipping the risen, ascended Christ according to his word?
David, when he went up to the house of God in Jerusalem, was happy. The Holy Spirit moving him wanted those going along with him to the house of God down through the ages to be happy too. And why wouldn't we be happy? The story we hear, the story of God's redeeming and elect people to be his very own treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation, Whatever its hardships along the way, it's still a story that ends happily ever after. So are you happy to be here in the house of the Lord? Whether it was two miles you covered this morning or two hundred, it was only his tender loving care that safely brought you all this way. And now here you are to savor the moment. Here you are, to savor the pleasures of the Lord's day spent among the Lord's people, hearing the Lord's word, having the Lord's ear, singing the Lord's songs. Here at last you are to savor Him. David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. In this first verse, the pilgrim thinks back to how he first looked forward to the journey to God's house. There it was, time to go worship the Lord, our glorious Redeemer, according to his holy law. Bags are packed, sitting by the door. The dogs checked in at the kennel, post office is holding the mail, newspapers stopped, we're ready to go. And how clearly I can think back to that happy moment when all the rest of them, all my travel companions, first rounded that bend in the road and stopped at my front door just long enough to say, Hey, you coming? Let's go! And then we made that long road trip together. And finally, finally, there we were. San Antonio, Texas. No, of course it wasn't San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio has its own special charms, of course. Has its own attractions. This particular house of God among them. But the psalmist, of course, is thinking back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He'd been looking forward to that trip with God's people to God's house for so long. In verse 1, he thinks back to a time when the trip was still ahead of him. And now here in verse 2, the verb tense indicates that he's suddenly looking back on the whole experience. I wonder if you noticed that. By verse 2, it's behind him already. Ever find that to be the case, that the family vacation, so long anticipated, so long in coming, all of a sudden it's behind you. These Christian camps, conferences, cruises, they fly by, don't they? 
These sweet moments we have to savor together the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ among His people. Suddenly, you're home again. You're unpacking your bags, doing your laundry, settling in, and all you're left with are the memories of that happy week spent together. That's what the psalmist is doing here in verse 2 and all that follows. He's thinking back on it now. He's reflecting on the whole experience. Turning the pages in the photo album of his mind. These feet that brought me all this way from home and back again. These feet have actually been standing within your gates. O Jerusalem. And so now he's safely home again. He's thinking back to what he saw, to what he experienced while he was there. And the first thing he noticed coming into Jerusalem was the security of the covenant people whose privilege it is to live there. Their security. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. Most of those out-of-town pilgrims coming to Jerusalem came probably from open towns and villages. Towns and villages, that is, without surrounding walls. Most of the year, the worshipping pilgrim lived in his humble hometown along a main street that might have had a house or two here, house or two over there, here a barn, there a shop, and then a few miles walk before you get to the next town, just like it. Everything was more or less open and exposed. But there he remembers. There he stood within the gates of Jerusalem, only to find two more sets of gates still ahead of him. Because for at least a season of her long history, Jerusalem was a city defended not by one, not by two, but by three concentric walls surrounding it. A city of palaces and citadels, a city of private residential homes joined together wall to wall, and there in the center of it all, of course, that golden white temple, the house of Jehovah our God. Yes, here I should be able to lay my head on my pillow at night in perfect peace. Here my family and I should find security living among God's own covenant people and God himself in the midst of her. Here's security. The second thing he remembers noticing there in Jerusalem is the unity of their covenant purpose while together for corporate worship. The tribes of Israel go up here Not just one or two of them. All the tribes do. Now being the children of Israel, they may in fact be my kinfolk, most of them, but we're certainly not close. Third, fourth, fifth cousins maybe. 
Most of these people coming to Jerusalem from all points of the compass, I really don't know at all. Doesn't matter. They're still my people. And they're here. It's Jerusalem to which the tribes go up, the tribes of Jehovah. Not to Dan, not to Bethel, not to the high places, not to congregate under every green tree. We go to Jerusalem. We go as pilgrims from all parts because it was decreed in the law that we do so. And you'll find that decree as early in Scripture as Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, where Moses says, Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. And why was it so decreed in the law? Why did God's people come together? Essentially for two reasons relating to the covenant people and to our covenant king, respectively. For us, the people of God, our periodically coming together to worship is a testimony of God's saving purpose for us corporately. Corporately. These pilgrimages demonstrate to me that the gospel is not just about saving my individual soul from the fires of hell. When by grace I repent and believe the gospel, I can't just wipe my brow and say, Oh, I'm glad that's over with, and then go on my merry way of independency. No. By grace, God has constituted us a people. He's constituted us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're a people, His covenant people. He saves us to live together among like-minded folk, among all the other tribes of Israel, also going up to worship the one and only true God. And our purpose in doing so has reference also to our covenant king. We get something out of this experience, but certainly so must he, not because he's depending on us for this worship, but simply because it's his due. He deserves from us the praise befitting his awesome majesty and the thanks due such boundless grace. It's the will of our king that he ride upon the praises of all Israel together. That is to say, his whole church. At my bedside, I may sing the psalms, but I sing solo. That's all I can do. I haven't yet figured out how to sing all four parts at once. We can do it here when there are enough of us trained to do it, but I can't do it in my private worship. The four-part harmony of our praise among God's people is absolutely grand when it falls upon the ear, isn't it? How much grander do you suppose it would be when 10,000 voices are pouring forth the praises of God in seven or eight part harmony or more? 
Can you imagine it? I scarcely can. But the glimpses into heaven given in the book of Revelation hint of a concert of praise absolutely glorious, infinitely glorious, something eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of men. Let every tribe go up to worship them, to practice for that day. Let us go up that not one single voice be missing. Thirdly, the psalmist recalls from his pilgrimage to Jerusalem the equity of the covenant power governing Israel under the house of David. That is, it's the administration of real justice he witnessed there. Real justice, justice under law, justice in action, justice that finally puts society back on track again as it enforces not the arbitrary, tyrannical decrees of men, but the gracious law of God, a law holy and righteous and good. There in Jerusalem, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. How the kingdom of God is suffering today for lack of practicing a sound, robust ecclesiology. How powerless the message of the church, how hollow it rings without the authority of our king and his biblically appointed courts of justice behind it. Beloved, what after all is the church? What is the church? Is church just a nice thing to get together and do every so often? Does church just materialize every Sunday morning at 9.30 and then dissolve again by 1.30 that afternoon? No. In addition to every other role and function our risen and reigning king assigns us, we are a divine institution for the administration of justice among God's people. Now that might not sound like much, might not sound like much until you're the one in need of it. But what a comfort it is for the genuinely wronged and hurting and grieving to know that Christ's heart is in this business of securing to us justice. And that he'll find it in the courts of the church. Because who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do justice? The civil courts no longer offer biblical justice in this nation, and they never really could. Certainly not reliably. They never could because they start this whole enterprise of law from the wrong place. They don't start with Moses and the covenant of grace. They start with John Locke and Thomas Jefferson. They start with some wispy, rootless idea of a social compact. They start with the assumption that it's we the people who ordain and establish law. And from that st starting point, beloved, from that starting point, you'll never attain the righteousness of God. You'll never reach true justice and the, the unspeakably sweet peace 
that attends it when it happens. When you read Deuteronomy 17, 18, 19, 20, and beyond, you come to realize that this holy nation, the church, is a people under the governance and rule of law. God hasn't called his people to be lawless slackers. Read the Old Testament law of God. Read the Gospels of our King. Read the New Testament epistles of his apostolic ambassadors. Read them and you'll find them all to be conveying one common but unfolding message. We're saved by grace to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who by irresistible grace conquered us and now leads us in his triumph. Let me now sprint to the finish. Here we are, the dazzled worshippers of the living God, now home from Jerusalem the Golden, the foundation of peace and city of the great King. We're home. We turn over the pages of that photo album that showed us again the covenant security, covenant unity, covenant equity of our King toward His people. What does turning these things over and over again in our minds do for us? Here's what it did for David when he remembered. Here's what it's done for generation after generation of faithful pilgrims who were glad to go up to the house of the Lord. It teaches us to pray. To pray for the peace, the security, the brotherhood, the comprehensive well-being of Jerusalem. Not so much for the brick and mortar of the place as it stands there in the Middle East today. If God's not so much interested in the working oxen, but rather the working preacher, as we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 9, much less is he concerned about the brick and mortar of Jerusalem. A house Christ left desolate for its unwillingness to receive and embrace him. The dispensationalists who put up these roadside billboards across Texas pleading with us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem have a difficult time, I think, understanding the typology and organic connection of the Old Testament with the New. There is, in fact, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Not two lords, not two ways, not two peoples. One. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for the peace of the whole universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. That glorious body, that elect lady drawn by predestinating grace from every kindred, tribe and tongue. It's that Jerusalem of which we speak when together we confess, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. 
Praying for the peace of Jerusalem takes me and the Spirit far beyond my individual bedside worship, far beyond my home congregation here in San Antonio, far beyond my Midwest Presbytery and Synod and denomination. In praying for the peace of Jerusalem, I am brought face to face with the unspeakable privilege that's mine, the privilege of being registered a citizen by grace among a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Gathered from every nation, together in Christ we proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. These nations of the world out of which we were drawn, nations immersed in their chronic rebellion against him, their chronic unrest, their chronic turbulence, they haven't figured these things out yet. Reconciliation between God and men? It's a mystery to them. Justice? What they offer is counterfeit. Peace? Not to be found. But here, within Christ's own holy commonwealth, the church, beloved congregation of the Lord, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, let us always seek her good. Amen.